Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. Do you feel more optimistic or less optimistic about the direction the world's going? More. More. Yeah, by a considerable distance. Because actually, when you look at extreme poverty, that the, the stats and the direction of travel is only in a positive direction. A journalist, a best-selling author, a social media content creator for comic relief and sports relief, and recent founder of social impact film company Really Good Films, is this week's guest, Mark Woods. Youngest in a family of seven siblings, Mark recounts the impact of his family upbringing, an early home life on his attitude to life and risk-taking, as well as the seminal impact of his English teacher on his life direction. Mark discusses his life transition from university into a career in journalism and PR during the early days of digital, before serendipity opened up a new creative path into the heart of Richard Curtis's comic relief organisation. We discuss Mark's many in-the-field comic relief and sport relief experiences, his work with the Sustainable Development Goals, his views on the current state of journalism, news and technology, and his optimism for the future of society. Mark also explains his motivation and method for writing his books on pregnancy for men and planet parenthood. I hope you enjoy this entertaining episode of Education and Impact with Mark Woods. Hi Mark, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for making the time. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. So we always start the podcast asking people about their life before they got into their career. So we'd like to talk about your upbringing. Well, I'm um, the youngest of seven children. It's a lot of children. It is. And my nearest sibling is 12 years older than me. So that, I think, had as big an impact as anything. Mm -hmm. in terms of the environment that I grew up in. Born in 1975 in the Midlands in the UK. Uh, So mum and dad were in their 40s when they had me. So you get a lot of input from your siblings in that kind of Mm -hmm. environment. 12-year-old nearest sibling, and then uh, all six of them go up in kind of two yearly increments. So So the oldest would have been, when you were about 10, the oldest one was well into the 20s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he's 21 years older than me. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. The next one was 12. Yeah. The influences there are many and various, actually. Did you ever feel that you're almost an only child because of such a distance? Yeah. And it felt like I got the benefit of that without any... The reality of it. ...negativity that people have about about only child, which Mm -hmm. I've written about that before, and there's a lot of rubbish written about single children, only children, but uh, I think, you know, but there's... So I had those moments on my own and a lot of imagination play. Mm Mm-hmm. But then I also had a lot of input from teenagers, adults uh, of different ages. And, and I spent a lot of time with adults very young. And, and that was just hugely formative. What was the household like? Were they all at home at the time? When you some were, were some, some were coming and going. Some were starting on careers. So there was a lot of shoes in the, in the <laughs> hallway. I remember when I moved Ones out. Ones that didn't fit you. Yeah, 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 yet. When, when, I, when I moved out, I remember my dad saying that he missed the shoes well, I was the last one to go or well, my friends had come around and take their shoes off and he said he noticed this the lack of shoes in the hall but it was just you know it's all you know isn't it so I'm there in a, in a busy house I, I, would, I remember looking down the drive to see who was in if you know if there was two or three cars it was busy 
there's lots of there's lots of stories going on in a busy house. And what like was that. the gender mix of the children? So there's five boys, two girls. All right, and then what was your next nearest, the twelve year old, uh, twelve uh, years old? Phil, boy. Yeah. And then a girl, three boys, a girl, a boy. Talk about the influence that both your mother and father had individually, and what the difference was between their their guidance and upbringing. So dad was working hard, worked in factories in the Midlands, was ex-military from the northeast, moved down to the Midlands as a lot of people did, economic migrant. I mean, before him, we were came over from Ireland to the northeast and then from the northeast down to the Midlands for car factories. You know, he was a hard-working uh-huh. man doing night shifts, six, seven kids to feed. So there was a, a work ethic there that was apparent right from the get-go. And mum worked as well and obviously brought up all these children mm. but then I get the start of people's careers and exams and what that means and people being in their early 20s and people coming in from nights out mm-hmm. so it was a real um, um, you know a, a lot of sensory kind of I vividly remember people going for a night out my 20 year old brothers yeah. and feeling that like that's seeing that and thinking mm-hmm. wow that's cool you know yeah. and, and, and just wanting to be older all the time wanting to be out there and and doing my own thing right from the get-go and what about your peer group what were they like so they they were i mean there was a big moment in my life when i left primary and junior school and i went to a secondary school i didn't know anyone it was a big change for various reasons and that was a big moment and that changed the course of my life like like a lot of things do mm-hmm. and I remember feeling out of place to start off with but quite quickly over the course of a year or two developed as an individual in a way that I may not have done in that sliding doors way elsewhere so it was a school where there was a lot of people from overseas it was a it was a boarding school although yeah. I was a I was a day Did pupil so there's a lot of Iraqis and Bahrainians and a lot of Spanish and a lot it was where was this? It was in the Midlands in Warwickshire. What, what, yeah. ta- what town? In between Rugby and Leamington Spa. Oh, right. And it was a it was a world away from my primary school in an inner city Coventry. So mm-hmm. that was a huge influence too. Right. And your mother, how much time did she have to devote to you and and as you were growing up? Because presumably after the others had got to that stage and they'd moved on, you did have more probably more attention than they had. Yeah, that must be true. But then there was also a 16-year-old sister and a 14... You know, there was lots of other people. So I, uh, my brother Anthony taught me to swim. You know, Angie, my sister, looked after me no end. I had huge memories of going out into, you know, shopping with her and parks. And so it was a really shared... I guess yeah. the trade-off between having more attention from parents who have had their all their children before is that they're, they're that much older. So, you know, mm-hmm. my, I said to my dad the other day, actually, because he's still around... I said, he's, I'm still three years younger than he was when he had me. And I'm knackered now. <laughs> so like, he's, he's, he was born in 1929 and he's 90 this year. I, I was thinking, God, it's you were 45 so when you had me. And I'd gone through six others and had the energy to... Yeah. And the sleepless nights of doing... Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And mum just... Mum's mm-hmm. a, still yeah, works. Yeah, she works still in a charity shop. She got an award, a 20-year service award for working in the charity shop that she works in. So she's been retired when she was 65 and then done a 20-year shift mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in the shop that she works in. So she's just on it all the time. She's like a mountain goat. I can't imagine you had a, a cos- cosseted sort of upbringing. You must have been given permission to play, to 
take risks, the ability to go out and explore the world without being under the, the watchful eye of your mother. Yeah, I'd say so. I think that, you know, you, 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 their era was the era that they brought their, the majority of their kids up in, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. So, you know, there were rules and boundaries for sure. Mm-hmm. But actually, yeah, when you look at parenting now and, and it was pretty free and easy mid 80s mm-hmm. to be able to go and do stuff. So yeah. that, that's very they, true. They didn't ever feel there was a risk that the often irrational fears that parents have now about letting their kids go out and explore and develop their sense of identity. You were able to. Yeah. My oldest boy, Stan, has just started to walk to school. He's 11, so he's just started secondary school. You know, give him a, a, a smartphone so he's on WhatsApp. You can find mm-hmm. out where he's. Well, that's a big deal for us. It's a big transitional deal for lots of parents nowadays. Mm-hmm. From year six to year seven over here, when you're, you kind of fly the nest in terms of going to school, crossing roads. Now, I was definitely doing that two years before. Yeah. Um, and, and lots of people were. That wasn't, I don't think that was special. I was doing it, I think, age seven, yeah. to be honest. That's yeah. un, that's over here anyway. In mm-hmm. the, uh, that is unusual. Pre, I was going to say pre-secondary school. Look, I mean, I think with the first child, people take fewer risks, and then they, you know, you yeah. kind of learn as you go down the tree anyway. So, but yeah, uh, I, when I think about Stan walking to school, my lad, and then me, there was they'd had six kids walking to and from school for mm-hmm. twenty-five years. They, 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 so I, I guess it was. And I, now I look back, I think that's true. I, I the confidence to take risks mm-hmm. um, and you, you don't know that's being put into you at the time but that's that's what it amounts to now so with what must have been an incredibly colorful upbringing with your siblings what in your mind is a, the most defining moment of your childhood in a positive sense yeah it was a, a school moment actually when I there was a certain teacher in English so when I was 15 when I felt like I, I had talent in that direction that sticks in my mind and, and it was it was just someone believing in me from a, an academic point of view we're a hugely academic family in that sense so but someone saying actually that's good mm-hmm. what you've written there and then thinking oh maybe i could do a levels because i not really and no one had told you that. that before not not I, they had but not not in a specific way about writing but it was always your handwriting's messy eventually it was well, actually the content of that is pretty good. It wasn't lavish praise, but it did make me think, oh, I might do A-level English. Uh-huh. And then and I, you did. I did, yeah, yeah, and then a degree, and then started writing. I write for a living now, essentially. All right, do you remember that teacher's name? Yeah, Paul Adams, his name was. Yeah, mm. I think he's still teaching now. He's a young guy, actually. He was mm. he was cool, kind of, you know, do you think mid-20s. He knows, do, do you think he knows where, where you ended up as a, a writer and content uh, I think he may do. Yeah. He may do. I, I won't be the only person that he, that that will, prescribe that kind of success to him it's great to hear stories of teachers that have that sort of level of influence what about school generally was it just english that you were interested in i weirdly liked physics a lot but was awful at it because my maths was pretty poor but i've since like pop science really interests me i only ever read really non-fiction i write non-fiction i read non-fiction and pop science stuff is what i pick out and read a lot (laughs) I, i really enjoyed physics but would never progress. I remember getting a C in maths and my dad saying, oh, you'll do an A-level in maths now. I was like, dad, I clawed my way to a C. I know, that's, that, I know that feeling. That's in the yeah. bank. I'm <laughs> never doing maths again, you know, but you needed it and that was it. Um, but really it was always, it was always words mm-hmm. from, from quite, you know, from 14, 15. So at what stage did you then 
get a, that focus in on journalism, saying, right, this is what I'm going to focus my career on and go to university and study journalism? Yeah, so I, I did an English degree because I'd enjoyed A-level English and there was a teacher called Moira Weir in my sixth form who was inspirational as well. And I, I just loved English and loved literature because of her uh, and her husband, Pat, if he's listening. Um, so I did an English degree and then I was doing a summer job at uni sitting in a factory with my mate Suki next to a machine at three in the morning. And I read something in the Times about postgrad diplomas in journalism. And it was talking about City and uh, different Cardiff and Preston. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And I'll look into that. But I had done match reports for my football club in the mm -hmm. Coventry Even Telegraph. And I had done work experience at the Rugby Avatar. So journalism was a thing. I was very romantic about journalism. I'd watched um, Lou Grant and All the President's Men is, mm. was still a film that I'll yeah. watch over and over again. So I, I, I like the thought and the feel of journalism as well as the creative reality of it, if you mm. like. So then I went to the University of Central Lancashire and did a postgrad diploma in newspaper journalism, specifically newspaper journalism. Maybe I should have done it in radio, TV, <laughs> yeah. but I did it. But in you, know, you didn't really quite probably anticipate what the internet was going to do to... No, although when I, was, I went to PA at the Press Association after that and had four really good years there and they brought this thing called Anna Nova out and we're talking 2000 and mm. no 1999 1998 so I had um, a Nokia with a modem I was filing on a modem in 98 from the middle of nowhere they brought Anna Nova in which was a kind of cyborgy news reader mm -hmm. And it, I could feel it. I could feel it changing. The copy takers who you'd ring your stories through, they were sadly, you know, being made redundant and it was all being automated. So it, it was changing even then. And I remember vividly the first time I went on a website in, in, when I was doing my postgrad. I went on um, Alta Vista and searched oh, yeah. stuff up. Like, so I hit that, the, the web and, and tech really early. And it's always, it's been a big part of my career. I went to One Digital, which was a, a forerunner of digital TV. So it's, I've always been quite techy oddly. Mm -hmm. um, and I got really lucky with, with Twitter and storytelling because I recognise Twitter as very similar to the Newswire from the minute it, it launched, really. And we gave Twitter, on something we did at Comet Relief, and I'm jumping around now, but we gave Twitter its European traffic peak with something we did in 2008 so and there was no one on twitter and we, just we, when just after twitter had started yeah, actually we were, yeah. we were using it to get information from a live event to a web blog mm -hmm. but in the middle was this thing called twitter we were using i was texting it sms in it and it was the highest there was no one in the middle then but obviously a year down the line yeah. there was uh -huh. and the year down the line i was tweeting from the top of kilimanjaro so it, it, it and it started to take off then and that those tweets were on the front page of the observer the next day and that, that, the, the use of digital technology to tell stories, I just got really lucky and was there at the start of it. Mm -hmm. Let's just go back a little bit. Because you did, you, you said you did your English and politics and went into journalism. But like you say, it could have taken you in, in many directions. Was there any sort of sense of what type of journalism you wanted to do? Yeah, so I did, um, I looked at sports journalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I'm going to say I did pick up the fact that you did um, reporting for Coventry. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, 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 I love sport, and I, I'd made the decision quite early that I love it a bit too much to work in it. Mm -hmm. So I did shifts at, at PA and, and what have you uh, at sport, and thought actually this is already becoming a job, yeah. and I'm not even getting paid for it. I'm going to leave that. I'll go into news. I was a newsy bod. I did a, a politics degree. 
as well as English degree. So I went into general news and, and was reporting on news events, cover the Kosovo war, some quite big trials, used to love court reporting. So that was a, 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 the newsy angle for four years was what I was, you know, mm. worked in, in Glasgow and Newcastle and Belfast and Manchester. So it was a great, I had a great time, you know, lucky, mm. got lucky with some good stories. What gave, what was the pivotal point that took you from one digital and doing that type of reporting into the, yeah, so I went from the P- shift. I went from PA into P. I went from the press association into PR at on digital. Ah, so right. on on digital and ITV digital, it became I was for people. Could we have a lot of listeners in the US? Yeah. So for the people in the US that don't know what on digital yeah, was, so it was in uh, the early days of early days of of digital TV that was delivered through an aerial as opposed to a satellite dish. Mm-hmm. But they were the pioneers. The tech was devised by some of their engineers there. Yeah. So it was, we were taking on Sky. Mm. I got in quite early and managed to help crash the entire company. <laughs> it became ITV Digital, you know, the terrestrial broadcaster owned it. But I learned a lot there working for a big corporate, but that was PR. So I'd taken the PR shilling and I didn't enjoy it. As, as a, I didn't enjoy PR, but I really enjoyed working in a big organization because it, it actually exposed me to advertising and the advertising world in a way that I, I just didn't know. As a reporter, did not know how advertising yeah, works Yeah, was that all. separation of church and state? Yeah. Well, there used to be anyway. Uh, oh, I, it, yeah. For me, at that time, I didn't have a clue. And, and they had a, an, a really successful ad campaign around Monkey at ITV Digital. That's where he came yeah. from. And I was involved a little bit in that, a little bit of copywriting, and just close enough to think, wow, this is cool. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting because the next job I got was a job advertising The Guardian for journalist stroke uh, copywriter and I thought wow I can the journalism bit I've got yeah the copywriting bit is the thing I've loved about PR I'll go for that and that was quite an interesting smart job that Comet Relief had advertised for because that was a branded content job before, before branded, branded content, content. yeah absolutely because that was what was that 2003 2002 like, yes exactly 2002 because yeah. it's funny I was at I was at an agency called Grey at the time mm. and I pitched an idea to my client Oracle to do a, a branded television series on CNBC called The Players and managed to get them to release a budget. We did 13 parts and said, yes, this is branded content. Is that Everyone, right? Yeah, it was in 2002. We did wow. it. <laughs> Got it broadcast on CNBC Europe and then on a whole bunch of airlines and business and business class. We interviewed Richard Branson, Carlos Ghosn, now the discredited head of Renault Nissan, head of the World Bank, all about transformational technology being Oracle. Yeah. But it was, I remember at the time, talking about branded content, everyone's like, what are you on about? I bet they wish they kept that going, eh? I know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was a one-off. Yeah, yeah, But there yeah. you go. So we there were some parallel paths in London at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was that was their, you know, and, and part of the reason is that they had access and were going to places and needed to generate content and tell stories, mm-hmm. but they needed that capability in-house because it needs to be flexible, it needs to be trustworthy. For people that don't know outside the UK, probably don't know what Comic Relief is mm. and the backstory to it. Do you want to just give a little bit of... Yeah, so Comic Relief was set up by Richard Curtis, the, the, the writer and film director and the hero, um, in 1985 mm-hmm. as, a, as a direct result of Band-Aid. Right. And he was an aspiring writer. He'd come through Cambridge. He worked and works a lot with Rowan Atkinson. And he thought if musicians can do that, comedians can do that. And for people that. that aren't maybe aware of Band Aid, Live Aid, everyone probably is aware of that. Certainly of the famous of, uh, Live Aid concert in Wembley Stadium that happened in Philadelphia and also 
people that have watched Bohemian Rhapsody are probably well aware um, of the latest film of Freddie Mercury's great performance at yeah. the Live Aid concert. So Richard Curtis was inspired, I think. Was he approached by Bob Geldof? No, no, he went to, well... Did he I go? don't know if he was approached by Bob, but he certainly has worked with Bob Geldof a lot since. Yeah. But he went to Ethiopia yeah. to, to, because there was a huge famine in the Horn of Africa. And he went there as a result of the Michael Burke reports, the news reports that triggered Band-Aid over here and in the States. And he was obviously moved. And it, the thing that Richard does always does is he, he always says to make something happen, make something. And he made and created Comet Relief, which initially was a couple of, a couple of performances on Chasbury Avenue in a theatre. Fast forward two years to 1988, it's on BBC One with an audience of squiddillion billion mm. that he used to pull in then, raises lots of money, people start buying red noses, and now it's raised £1.3 billion. Pounds. And is it, there is one in the States, actually, Red Nose Day America yeah. does happen in the States with Walgreens on NBC. So it's become a huge humanitarian force. Um, and I joined there in 2002. And, and I wasn't, I'd never worked for a charity. I wouldn't even say I was that charitable. For my <laughs> but it, it, that's been, I was been there and still associated with Comet Relief 17, 18 years later. So what, when you went in there to do this branded content role, what, what did you expect it to be and what did it end up being? We, no one called it branded content, but it, it, I remember when the chief exec, Kevin Carhill, asked me what made me laugh on TV in my kind of chem, chemistry interview with him, a rubber stamp interview. And I thought, this is a really interesting place because it's, there's, there's a very, very serious nature to what they do, but they use comedy, which I was really interested in and always loved, mm. and entertainment to, to get that across. And sure enough, you needed to be pretty at home to both. And that's quite tricky. Richard, gear changes between those two things like no one else. It's, diff- it's a difficult balance to strike, particularly when you're dealing with hardship and tragedy and at yeah. the same time bring in comedy and make it work. Yeah. So and and I, I've learned so much from him and 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 that organisation and Emma Freud, who's his partner, that is off the scale. That the ability to do that, and they also don't take no for an answer. They also they just charm the birds out of the trees in in, in order to get things done for mm-hmm. Comet Relief. And that's the huge that's a huge influence on me because it taking no for an answer when you you're on the side of the angels, as it were, which they are, and what that organisation yeah. is, is not an option. And that that they've taught me that hugely. So yeah, I've been I've been to Sub-Saharan Africa and, and India a lot, telling the stories of, of how Comet Relief helps. And I've been, and, and obviously I've done lots of celebrity challenges that they've done with Killy being one, and I climbed mm-hmm. it again this year, which was did you? Yeah, yeah they went, we went tenth anniversary, so we went back up in March. Any easier a second time round? Do you know what? No. I mean, I'm a decade older, but actually the fear factor about climbing that mountain dissipates if you've done it once, uh-huh. I think, because you, you kind of know that it's going to hurt your head as you yeah. get above 5,000 metres, but you're probably going to be okay, whereas the first time you climb it, you're just not sure. I mean, that's quite a misplaced because could, it could easily have not been okay the second time, but somehow you think, I know, I know this. You get there, your head hurts, you're exhausted. Same time of year? Exactly the same time of year. Any difference in impact that you notice from a climate change yeah, perspective? Glaciers were smaller for sure, and I, you know, and I'm no expert on glaciers, but just just remembering what they were like. Yeah, definitely, definitely, quite a place though, Killy. Yeah, it's on my list of things to do at some point. We like to explore and just chart whether serendipity or happy accidents have played a part along your journey. Yeah, well, like. I mean, yes. Opening opening the Times to read about my journalism postgrad course and opening the Guardian to see that ad on those two days, I've mm. often thought could easily not have if happened. If you had, yeah. 
So ending up at journalism school and end up at Comet Relief. The parenting books that I write, I mean, it was serendipity. In fact, I thought there's no books I want to read, really, mm. so I'll, I'll write one. And I was really naive, so I just wrote to publishers and said... I've, here's here's a couple of pages on a book I think I should write and and I just got lucky I got rejected seven or eight times but one of them said oh actually yeah you know that's let's do that and we did so I got a book deal really without knowing what I was doing um, so that that's again that comes back to confidence more and more than serendipity mm-hmm. to think I, I can definitely write this but I wonder if anyone will you know will have faith in me to write it so again mm-hmm. someone saying yeah we'll print 50,000 of these things you've written is a big it's a big deal and it does help your self-belief but it's also what you you talked about your father's work ethic and what sounds like there is a strong element of persistence and perseverance in there and self-belief in yeah. yourself to pursue that to get it through and yeah yeah that's true and also like not feeling that work is work mm-hmm. I'm interested about that but what was the trigger to actually you said there weren't any books out there for parenting for fatherhood. Well, but, they're not ones that I. But that there you was want, one that you, want, that you wanted to read. Yeah. So, what angle were you coming at it from, and what particularly was missing? And there was a there was a great book called Fatherhood: The Truth by Marcus Berman, which I read, and it made me laugh, and it was interesting, and it was informative, and it was warm. There was also a lot of books that were how to look like you're interested. Mm-hmm idiot's guide how to wing it and I, don't, I didn't want to wing it it was i wanted to help and, yeah. and understand but not you know just if you do this then you'll get away with it mm-hmm. um so I, I wanted something that was accessible i wanted to put a bit of humor in it because it did strike me there was a lot of humor in in the whole area so i wrote i wrote it and it pregnancy for men and it it's still yeah we just i just did a new edit last year for the ninth anniversary of it and it's been published in lots of different countries so I just got incredibly lucky because there's 10 of them now mm-hmm. I mean there's no end of pregnancy books for men but it was what was the approach you were taking with the book it needed to be informative and helpful first uh-huh. and then that if it was a, if it was a light read and easy to get through then that's great but it couldn't be the other way around it needed to be useful mm-hmm. and at what at what age were your children at this point when you wrote it Stan Stan was one so it wasn't a great time to write a book <laughs> for my wife, but go upstairs with 75,000 words and yeah. hammer it out. But yes, Sarah had had Stan and I'd kind of noticed this huge pile of books on her bedside table and not many on mine. And then the, the following year, got a deal and wrote one. Yeah, that was 2009. Yeah. How did you juggle that with the work you were doing at Comic Relief at the time? That must have been quite a challenge. Yeah, I did. And it. a I young wrote, child. Yeah, I wrote at night. I wrote it late, late at night, so I was just knackered at Comet Relief, and I used to drink red wine when I was writing. Right. Yeah, yeah. I found that book very easy to write compared to stuff I've written since because it was it was in me uh-huh. to come out, and it was the first thing I'd ever written, and it was it was it just I don't remember any pain writing that. Whereas a couple subsequently, like Planet Parent, for some reason, just was more of a struggle, and it probably reads like that. And then, how long did it take you to write it? About three months. Oh yeah, you must have been busy at nights then. Yeah, I was. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was, it was. You know what it's like when you kind of get that excitement about a project. Mm. It didn't feel that way. And Sarah was amazing, obviously. Mm. And it, I, you know, I, I thought we'd get a bit of an advance, and it might buy a new sofa. <laughs> but it, it's still going now, and it's 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 great. But it's more about the doors that it opens. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, so explain the difference between that and then the planet parent. Yeah. So planet parent as a so I wrote. Pregnancy for men and then babies and toddlers for men, which is like the follow-up mm-hmm. 
So naught to three. The, the books go through chronologically through the pregnancy and then also to naught to three. Planet Parent. Tracking was, with as your children were growing through, yeah. through those stages. Well, kind of, yeah. Louis, my, my little boy, was naught to three when we were looking. But yeah, you kind of teeth in, you know, you go through the stages. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, it's a journalistic book, you know, there's a lot of information in there. But it, it's easy to flick through. And then Planet Parent was as a result of me doing so much travelling with Comet Relief. I, I just saw lots of different parenting skills and types and approaches around the world and similarities yeah some yeah i mean yeah of course similarities in the love that everyone has for their children that's the Mm. main similarity and how things are different you know how people are potty trained in china is really not the same way it kind of is getting a bit westernized now but there's a certain technique over there that is very different to the west so there's lots of things like that so Mm. i'm a treat (laughs) well there was a (laughs) find out that there was, there's a there's a noise that's made. It's slightly different in different regions, and they use it in some parts of India as well. So they they associate the baby very very quickly to under one. Uh-huh. The baby will associate this noise with going for a wee. So th- there'd be a kind of noise, and very quickly the baby will sink. And they in China they have split split pants that if you if the baby pulls its legs up the pants open they do a wee there and then because there's no it's to keep clean side of the road or wherever you are done that yeah. baby is, is is certainly in terms of wheeze is potty trained very quickly no nappies um that when i found that out when i went to china i thought well that, that's, that's amazing. brilliant because yeah. like, pregnancy of men was published in china and i went to do some publicity over there and someone told me that story whilst i was in beijing and i thought wow and nappies are coming in in china mm-hmm. which is a big deal when you consider yeah. How many there may be? So yeah, it, I bet a lot of grandparents are rejecting that. Yeah, yeah. So there's all, I mean, there's all sorts going on around that in China, but um, around kids in general. But um, so that that's Planet Parent, and then I subsequently have just launched a podcast about um, they're called Planet Parent, which is just me interviewing people because I am not an expert on parenting. I don't think anyone is an expert on parenting. And every time I'm introduced as one, I could kind of hear my children and my wife laughing, no matter how far away they are. <laughs> uh, and it, I just like in interviewing for this podcast people who are experts about different uh-huh. things so that's all that is so planet parent is the is the book that i wrote last um and it's been great i mean you know i'm proud of anyone buying my book if i see someone with it on the train i'll weep <laughs> well if you see a man weeping in front of you on the sort of the dlr you'll know yeah, who it is. don't be alarmed yeah. yeah so let's go back to um the journey in comic relief and there was also sports relief. How, what was your role between the two parts of the organisation and what they were doing? It was essentially the same organisation and you'd you'd move from one to the other. They'd be on alternate years. I, I was only ever any use when the campaigns were live, really. Mm-hmm. I'm not a hugely kind of strategic thinker, but when things came live and needed to make stuff famous uh-huh. and get people to know about it, that's when I got interested through telling the stories whether it is how the money's spent or how the money's raised it was it, it was high profile so it I like that that's what got me always used to in newspapers but like the, the sense of journalism mm-hmm. that I was put into me by my excellent tutors at, at when I did my postgrad um, Maggie Henfield being one of them I've, I use that every day still what's a story why is it a story what's the line that's become more valuable to know that, not less. Even though newspapers are, 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 are don't go down the pan in, in some ways, but storytelling isn't. No, and that that sense, mm. that being taught that and getting that, being able to sniff a story and tell a story, is all I can do. Can you give us some examples of 
some of these when you say it went live i mean obviously the sport sport relief and for listeners that don't know what that is that's an, an another one day event where richard curtis and the team and the bbc get together all the great and good yeah sports. it's like red nose day with shorts on yeah? yeah you you use sport in the way that red nose day uses yeah. entertainment but it was using sport um to to do good to kind of do good feel good thing so can you give us some examples of um some of the initiatives and the things that happened the the notion of celebrity challenges of of people taking on big challenges uh, was 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 born in I think it was born in Red Nose Day in two thousand and eight, and then Killy in two thousand and nine. So t- lots of celebrities climbed Killy, and then Davina McCall, John Bishop, uh, David Walliams mm-hmm. swam yeah. the Channel, and then swam the Thames. Yeah, I remember that was he, he really suffered in one of those, didn't he? Yeah, I mean the the Channel. He he did. Well, I, I think I'm right in saying David did one of the top fifty times of all time, uh-huh. and he he's a comedian and a writer. But it wasn't a swimmer, but so he was he was superb at that. And then he did the Thames, which was an extraordinary thing to do. Yeah, he got ill. He got what do we call it? Thames tummy because it's not the cleanest. No. It's getting cleaner, but it's not the cleanest. He saved a dog. I remember one day a dog that fell in, and that made all the papers. So I I was there on the boat. I wasn't just me, but I was there on the boat because you were activating it through social media. Yeah, so time, I, yeah. I had Twitter and latterly Instagram and Facebook in my pocket. And I'd put those stories out, mm. and and the press o- offline and increasingly online would pick those up. So you were you were talking you, you you talk to your own audience, but you're also using that as a platform to talk to other people through other news aggregators or or, or sites. So mm. having that that's why it's like a newswire. That's why the 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 PA newswire I, Twitter just felt like that. And that initially it was just copy. Then it was images. Then it's video. And we see in video, and that's why that's why that trajectory goes up because it's becoming more like what we see day to day. So the fact that video is more engaged with than pictures is not shouldn't be huge news, but it, you know it is because it's it's becoming more like the experience we get. Mm. So being able to send an image, I remember that being very exciting. Being able to tweet an image, yeah, I remember that when it first came in. Yeah, okay. wow. that was a big yeah. deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now it's you know live yeah. stuff. So. That's that's the that's where I burnt my crust. And I remember the John Bishop one as well. I can't remember was that, that was that a, a run or a walk or something? It was all, it was all of them. <laughs> John was, did. He, didn't he? Wasn't it sort of a, John John O'Groats to Land's End or something? He did. He did, he did Paris. So he cycled from Paris to Calais. Yeah. Which nearly killed him. Uh, he got in. He got in an hour before he had to row the Channel. Mm-hmm. Like he was four or five hours late. And John Bishop, um, for any American listeners, is a very successful British Liverpoolian, I think. Com- yeah, yeah, comedian. He's a scale stand-up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, we, there's some people who helped him row the channel. Freddie Flint off a cricketer. Mm. Being, I remember him there. And then he had to do three marathons in three days yeah, to get from the it. coast that, that's what what to was, London, yeah. from Kent to London. Mentally, yeah, he, yeah, he was yeah. like a broken man. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And Davina McCall did Edinburgh to. London, cycling, running, swam in Windermere in March, which nearly killed her. That was astonishing. I know that changed Davina's life, absolutely, that mm-hmm. experience. You've got Zoe Ball very recently, Greg James. It's been a, it's, it keeps going. People, people really buy into it mm-hmm. because you can see people going through something that they're not, you, you know, you know them for what they're, what they're famous they're celebrity, for. but then you see the sacrifices they yeah, put up. Yeah, you stick them at five yeah. and a half thousand meters. It's tough. Uh-huh. It's tough. Um, and th- there's normally TV documentaries 
uh, around these things, but I tend to tell the granular story day to day. Although I've just set up with a colleague a, a little film company called Really Good Films, short, non-scripted films around purpose and stuff. Oh, and that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it is because it's the 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 difference and distance between social media content and films, TV or films is getting shorter, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of meeting in the middle. And we we only you know, specialise in what we specialise in, Jackie and I, which is non-scripted, real people, situations and scenarios, because that's what we're used to when we film lots of those. But it used to be you'd make an edit and then think, oh, we just cut something out of that for social. And now you're just going direct. Yeah. But tell me more about this. What type of purpose-based activities? We're we're not sure. We're not sure yet. I mean, I think we'll end up doing stuff for charities, but I think also for corporates. Like the purpose thing is is out there i've helped out a little bit with the global goals with for richard yeah Yeah, you know there's a lot of corporate involvement in that so i think there's a world out there that will that will generate i think adding ad ad land will move towards that i know they are i mean they're they're trying to yeah they are and and (laughs) they just don't quite know how to do it with their business model no so uh, we're just a little you know a tiny little uh-huh. a little operation who, who are used to making films because we've worked in and around comic relief that are, that are about purposeful moments, especially around real people and their experiences. So that's our little... And you know what gets traction. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you know that the emotion and gear changes. There's just It's just a different world to make, you know, making an ad, actually, if you're going to go and make talk to people in the middle of their environment, especially if it's a tough environment... It's just a different skill set. I mm. guess it's more journalistic. But I, I'm, I've been making 20, 30, 45 seconds and we're just moving to two minutes 30. You know, I, I, don't, I can't see us making a feature film. But mm. um, yeah, there, there seems to be a fair bit of interest out there. There's certainly a lot of stories to tell. And how did you get involved with the, um, was it called the Fantastic Project Everyone? or in Project the, Everyone. Project Everyone. That was Richard again. Um, I don't know where he found find some time to do this but he the UN essentially asked Richard to make the the millennium development goals that were coming to an end to make the sustainable development goals accessible and interesting and lively and project everyone which was about making everyone aware of them was set up to do that uh-huh. And he pulled a really good team together, and they're still there doing that now. So every younger, every uh, September in New York, when mm-hmm. the the global goals, which is what the rebranding became of the SDGs. I mean, they're still called the SDGs, but the global goals is the accessible side to them. There's 17 of them, he says, yeah. hoping there are. Yeah. The Project Everyone is is still going and pushing those mm-hmm. things out and making a big noise about them. With Richard very much involved, and we're coming up to a critical moment in 2020 around those, and, and where where we'll people and countries and will need to you know stand up to their commitments around them i mean you've been part obviously of that organization for 17 years and you've seen incredible sacrifices incredible generosity and been on the ground to see the recipients of of some of the the benefited from this yet we still see arguably in certain places an increasing um, chasm of inequality between those that have and those that haven't do you feel more optimistic or less optimistic about the direction the world's going? More. More. Yeah, by a considerable distance. Because actually, when you look at extreme poverty, that the, the, the stats and the direction of travel is only in a positive direction. Yeah, I know. I've, I was talking to someone on the podcast the other day about Stephen Pinker's book, 
Yeah. Um, his latest one, which talks about and stats give you all the, oh, there's no the data. There's no way that you can. But I think it's uh, the reality is we in the news cycle that we're we experience the never ending news cycle mm. and and flow of social media. We're always encountering negative stories and yeah, yeah. and being exposed to suffering and inequity. So it's quite hard to remain positive and believe that things are actually sort of improving. Yeah. So how did comic relief continue to remain relevant? in the face of potential sort of... Compassion fatigue. Yeah, compassion fatigue, yeah. Um, well, it, it, it's it's a challenge, but actually no more or less of a challenge than any other organisation in an ever-changing world gets it. And it. Look at Comet Relief is, is aligned with, and has a history with TV audiences. Mm-hmm. That's certainly changing, fragmenting. So there's lots of challenges there. Richard, in, in terms of... SDGs and the macro politics of it all and the Gates Foundation it's a he's on it you know so so it's it's whether whether giving to charity changes the way you give has certainly changed um Comet Relief will will find its way and other organizations will find their way I mean everyone has to right and I suppose he's if he's still so driven and so motivated to push the direction that Comet Relief's going, it's not. It's not something that's something going to fade away and disappear. No, it's part it, of the fabric of the of the. Yeah, he's he's as committed as he's ever been, as far as I can tell. He's he's put so much of his time into it. Red Nose Day America has been a success and continues to be, um, and that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like for the, for that that to be on. NBC over there. On yeah, and it's wa- definitely wa- beginning. Greens. It's definitely beginning to get more traction. I mean, yeah. I think it was three years ago. Was it three years ago? Is it the it was fourth, fourth year, fourth year I yeah. Think, or maybe even the fifth. Yeah. And you yeah. are starting to see more people wearing yeah. the red noses. Around. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing it in New York. Yeah, so. yeah. So it's that he's got so much stuff going on. He's a, an amazing man. So you're doing your, your, you've got your journalism. You're doing your content creation. Um, we're living in a very unusual time for software journalism. Um, storytelling is going mm. what's your sense of the future landscape for either for opportunity for journalists for content creators or anyone that's coming in that wants to get into that area yeah podcasts for instance it. uh it's so pacey that you you almost have to have more like, i think for a while people say well, you've got to be ultimately flexible you've got to be able to change and I don't think that's the, the way forward for individuals. So I think it's impossible to keep up. Mm. I think you need to have belief, but also care about what you're, you're doing. If you can get to a point where you, you care about what you're doing, then you'll stick with it. If it's, if it's, a, if it's a more opportunistic, when the, the tectonic plates move within six months, then it's, it's, it's harder to find another idea that you think will fly. Mm-hmm. So it's... I, being passionate is more important not less because it, it that's what will sustain you with an idea not just opportunism what's your view on the whole sort of fake news and and the clickbait culture for me it feels like we're 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 in a transition phase that we're being surrounded by the, mm. the clickbait that fake news we're all aware of it now do you think it's something that we are going to pass through and we'll leave behind or do you think it's with us forever i don't think we'll leave it behind in that sense i think we'll change so when i look at my kids you know there's a great paper called first news over here for kids which, which they read a lot and it's got a huge circulation and it's interesting because my mum comes and reads it as 89 says it's great it's got a positivity in this and uh, what and I, paper based yeah it's both basically but it, i get the paper for them uh-huh. because they do the crossword and stuff that you know it's, it's a great paper but it they get taught about fake news now 
I mean, I did, I did propaganda as a module in my English degree. That was the first time I'd come across the notion of Torah, 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 was a, yeah. you know, or that the placards in 1963, Republican rally were handed out to people for the first time, as opposed to people turning up with them. Mm-hmm. I vividly remember that when I was 19, thinking, wow, that seems so simple, but it's a huge deal to hand people placards with slogans on, as opposed yeah. to hoping they'll turn up with them. And that was 63 or 62, whichever convention it was. They, they get that, and they're going to need to. If, I mean, what, I'm 43 now, and I'm into this stuff. If you're not, it, it's very, very difficult. It's a, it's a as labyrinth. A, as a journalist, is it something you have a, an intuitive sense for, that you can spot something, you go, there's something inauthentic in that, that's fake, that's a, there's a lie embedded in that? Because if, if kids have got to become yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. accustomed to dealing with it and then being able to filter out what's fake and what's not, presumably it is something that there are, there are patterns to yeah. spotting it. Particularly, I think, particularly we're getting into machine learning and AI that's generating. Yeah, so, yeah, I say yeah, machine-generated yeah, yeah. fake news. I mean, I've, I'm no, you know, I've got no magic kind of one for that. I, I do tell my kids when they're reading stuff, news stories, just the old thing about direct quotes, because it still holds. Mm-hmm direct attributed quotes if there aren't any then think on but you know proper ai fake video yeah that's terrifying yeah like how how are you meant to tell mm-hmm. where it comes from when it comes why it's arrived at you they're getting to know that kids are getting to know that actually the ads are put in the middle of their tv shows for a reason and you may well be sold you know, why are you sold gloves in the winter? And why are you sold, why, why does that pop up in your feed? And I talk openly to the kids about, I'm pretty convinced that I've said stuff and it's appeared in my feeds. Mm-hmm. So I'm in my social feeds. So I've not Googled anything. I've not, I've said stuff and it's appeared. It happened once in particular when I was reading an article about something and had a conversation and there it was, I was being served up ads about something. Now, there's plenty of theories about this, whether it's true or not. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's true or not. I, I, I talk to my oldest son about that quite a lot because that's his world. He, we've got an Alexa, and Alexa's great as a parent because he's heads up. It's not, it's not on a screen, but what does that mean? Where's that going? That's, that's going to be his world. Oh, no. no I spent a lot of time with, with tech and digital when I was in um, the agency world, but I'm so conscious now that I've got a Google Home, a Siri... Mm. Um, Apple Pod and also Alexa in the bathroom you just know that some some way somehow what you're saying is being tracked somehow whether it's being fed into Google's double click system to serve you up ads I'm definitely saying things and having conversations at home that are resulting in ads being targeted yeah. at me related to specifically to things I've said yeah. I see it all the time yeah and that that and I'm a bit of an all-in bod when it comes to tech like in a way you know mm. you, you, you there's good reasons probably not to have speakers in your home and the rest of it smart speakers but I've got them and, and I don't think the genius going back in the bottle mm. no it's not you either embrace it yeah, and then yeah. know when to when to turn it off and when to turn it on yeah but so, I am also a believer that the kids are exposed to that conversation now because it will become something there across in a way that we're still gobsmacked by mm-hmm. I recently um, moderated a breakfast session in New York with Todd Jacobson who's head of corporate social responsibility at the NBA and we got talking about the importance of purpose and philanthropy and the future role of organisations and that having a, a legacy impact, you've got to go further than just simply sort of necessarily give money. That mm. companies got to step up beyond just standard CSR activities. Mm. 
Are you seeing any evidence of corporate change through the lens of comic relief that companies are beginning to take the, the global goals more seriously and changing their corporate behaviour? Yeah, through, um, through, the, through Project Everyone and through the global goals, I've seen, I've seen Aviva setting up a benchmarking alliance where they're bringing in different companies and, and looking at systemic change, not just mm-hmm. ticking a CSR yeah. box, which is a box worth ticking, mm-hmm. but proper systemic change internally and externally. I think that is, there's an inevitability that that will happen more and more across the corporate landscape, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and that means different things for different organizations but yes I, I think it, i think it is changing and it will change and consumers will drive that and social media drives that too because organizations find out who they are through their interaction with people including on social media it defines them it's not just execution or where we're gonna you know use to serve up an ad on twitter or mm. on facebook you've, you've the reaction to that ad tells you what your consumers think you are it's rolling um marketing rolling um, research day to day, minute by minute, and organisations that realise that, then they tailor their output, and not the other way around. Uh, how old are your children? Uh, Eleven, eight, and four. Yeah, so the eleven-year-old's getting to an age they're going to be savvy enough to then start to spot organisations and corporations that aren't being authentic and delivering on promises that they're just hollow marketing or advertising messages. If they are going to attract, retain, either as customers or even as employees, that generation, not even millennials that are feeling this, that this upcoming generation, whether we call them Generation Z, they need to sort of step up to the plate and go further. So I would have thought that your kids' generation will be the ones that will be holding them accountable. These companies then have to go further than just ticking that Yes. box as yeah. you say and, and, and uh, you know a table tennis table and a pool table is not enough but because it's not I mean we can't rely on governments and given the sort of the the polarisation happening in politics that our political parties will be the ones that will be setting the sort of the the policy directions it's going to come down to the corporations and the leadership and, and to deliver long term shareholder value won't be in terms of just short term profits it will be long-term performance and ability to survive and maintain the, the environment and the planet. Oh, yeah, yeah, quite. So you I factor think climate change into that and, it, and, and that, yeah, there's a, there's a role to play without doubt for corporations mm. and they will almost certainly lead on it because they're global in the sense that governments aren't. Yeah. Because they, they, you know, na- national boundaries mean nothing where climate change is concerned. So if you've got pan-global corporations, there aren't anyone more likely or more powerful to act in that world. Mm-hmm. And, and around that issue and have a have a direct the imperative to act as well yeah. for pure survival both in terms of customers yeah, and quite, profitability yeah. uh, look at global citizen mm-hmm. which is you know that model has been going for a little while now where you'll take action and there'll be a reward yeah i think more and more of that will happen and it will get smarter and become refined and it'll it'll become digitized and i think it is happening i i, I don't think the next the next platform or the answer to that is is here yet. Mm-hmm. I think we're still ringing out the pips of the of the old platforms. I don't even mean social media platforms. Actually, I, just, I think I th- it feels like there's there'll be something around the corner that that when you look at the the plastics conversation that's going yeah. on now and the speed that that has taken off and how uh, how that's crossing borders and affecting policy that the campaigning level of that that goes from 
um, macro governmental level to the most micro decisions that you make to either buy a metal water bottle all of a sudden mm. and leave the plastic behind at home for your kids on a Tuesday morning. The, the thread through that right the way to the UN and all the way up to huge corporate boardrooms, it's a straight line. And that I don't think that's been harnessed yet or given the the tools it needs. And it may well be tech will will sort that out or it may be an individual. Mm-hmm. But but that in that in particular, I mean that's that's the Attenborough kind of thing, the kickoff for that was two years maximum that that's and it's still going and you look at the kids movement that's going on around it and schools there is there is momentum there but it's, it still feels quite disparate i'm with you on the fact that i think there is going to be something around the corner the amount of times i hear doing well by doing good just coming out of either agencies or brands isn't having an, an impact enough to address particularly the leaving aside the non-environmental thing the environmental challenge that we're facing whether it's man-made or not, something has to yeah. be done that man can control. And it does feel to me that there's someone out there or some organization that's going to emerge that will create a significant systemic sort of change and mm. impact over and above what governments do. And yeah. I think that's what, for me, is exciting about what might be around the corner. Yeah, I'm going to segue into talking about curiosity and creativity. I mean, obviously, creativity is at the heart of what you do and everything you have done. But how important is it for you to continue to cultivate your own curiosity and the curiosity of your children? It's a funny word, creative and creativity, isn't it? It's it's loaded in different industries. I, I used to have it in a job title once, and it made me slightly uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't really know. I talk to my kids about being creative and, and when you try and define it, it's kind of like a bar of soap and I don't really know what it is. Thinking differently, you know, trying to find a different way around things. I remember being an awful speller when I was young and, and being stumped by how to spell certain words and then thinking, I'm just going to have to find a different word. Mm-hmm. I can't spell this word, so I'm going to find a different word for the same thing. And, and who knows, that might have been what sparked <laughs> me becoming <laughs> someone who gets pay to take me to write. I think, well, I won't use that word, it's a bit boring. Initially, I just couldn't spell it. So I was like, well, I'll just use another one. And walking around with a thesaurus, is that creative or is that, you know, is rhetoric the rule of three? I was talking to Stan about this morning. He, he was saying, so why, why, you know, why say that? Why say it three times? Why? There's a brilliant book called the, and I'll, I'll get, let me get this right, The Elegance of Eloquence, which uh-huh. is worth reading about oh, rhetoric. Good. Superb book. That, that kind of, what is creativity? What does it mean? I'm, you know, just a bloke born in Cov, just writes a bit. Am I creative? I suppose I am. I'm more creative than anyone else. Sometimes having a brain that thinks creatively in inverted commas is a real pain because mm-hmm. it never shuts up. Yeah. But what, what, I find, what I find interesting is how much I appreciate people who can harness that, use that, take those nuggets sometimes and turn them into things, complete a finishers, the people who run the payroll at companies, all the stuff that I can't do and then rubbish at. I find myself admiring people like that more and more, in a, in a, not just in a collaborative sense, but I find wonder in people who do, who do those, genuinely do those things and, and stick at them and make them happen and attention to detail and all the things I'm absolutely pants at. So I don't know what you know whether being creative is a, is a thing or not. I, I do know that other people do things better than I do. I'm not musical, for instance. Anyone you know picks a guitar up and plays it, I find that. Yeah. astonishing i you know am i 
a creative person. I guess I am, but I think everyone is in a different a different way, and and actually not not pigeonhole in people will become more and more important because I think we'll all need to club together to to make things um, and that's you know there used to be a kind of everyone's suggestion has got you know put it in everyone can have an idea of course like everyone has ideas all the time and mine are no more valid I, like having a bit of perseverance and self-belief to think I'm going to write a book and then when the seventh rejection letter comes in thinking if I'm honest thinking you're wrong and I'm right about this book is ultimately it I don't know if that's being bloody-minded or creative, but ultimately that's what gets you there. But to remain relevant in the whatever career you find yourself in and to be able to continue to do things in an unusual, surprising way presumably does come from your innate curiosity to spot patterns where maybe other people Yeah, don't. yeah. Yeah, that is true, I think. And an awfully low boredom threshold uh-huh. to the point of being troublesome. So, like, okay. uh, yeah always thinking oh interesting but no no I know a little about a lot, a lot of things yeah. uh-huh. I always have done I can give you a good tight 30 seconds on most things after that uh-huh. I'm, I'll embarrass myself so that I mean that that is essentially journalism in lots of ways yeah it, it, mm-hmm. you know it's, it's to being able to dive in get it quickly move on yeah four four paragraphs see you later uh-huh. and that's my brain works like that so I'm no yeah. good at finishing anything but I'll, I could start it. <laughs> but that allows you also to spot patterns as well. And because it's up there somewhere in those sort of firing between those synapses and the neurons. So yeah. it, it must manifest itself in some way in the work that you do. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I guess it does. And, and, and tone and knowing what will land with people is probably part of what I can do. Is mm-hmm. thinking this, this will have that effect either emotionally or, or not. or. It, and just pitching it right. And so writing a book that's about pregnancy, but then writing about miscarriage in a book that's quite light in tone, you can do that. And Richard Curtis did think, do you know what? Comedians can do something about horrific poverty. Mm-hmm. The two things can coexist because we can make it work. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah th- those patterns are there. Just about to get into quick fire questions. One of the things that we are really passionate about is education and it being the key to unlocking positive change in society, aside from the short-term things that can happen through organisations like Comic Relief. Um, if you were handed the keys to the mayor's office, or even better, Downing Street, what would you do in terms of the key changes that would help improve the future opportunities for youth in this country? I'd try and launch a campaign that made education cool, that made being smart, smart. I'd try and change the frame of reference around it, because I think there's an issue mm-hmm. at, at, on a peer level in, 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 a lo- in lots of educational environments for kids where somehow it's seen as not cool to be smart and people, the penny drops too late. That, that is not beyond a, 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 the, the, the wit of communications experts mm-hmm. to change that. But do you think, do you think that's been the, the case of every generation? I mean, I remember the, the, the peer pressure. If you did too well at school, there'd be kids in there in yeah maybe maybe i'll tell you why I, I i always think about that though is because when i spend time in let's say rural parts of uganda or or ever zambia you notice really quickly that the kids there get education and they really want to be because it's life and death yeah and, and they think i i there's nothing will stop them going to school mm-hmm. and 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 so it is possible to take that away. I'm not suggesting that that's what's needed as the result, but to say this is something that's absolutely key 
mm-hmm. to my future and the future of my family and the people I care about, um, they get that en masse at all ages and are desperate to go and learn because they, they see the, the correlation between that and survival. Now, it, so whether it's, whether it's cool or not, it feels like it needs a job doing on it mm-hmm. from a, almost from a brand point of yeah view. And that's very interesting um so the quick fire questions um what principles do you stand by i don't take yourself too seriously yeah. i don't take myself too seriously i'm not i'm no, i'm nothing special at all and and, and I, I that would be the key one is just we're all just having a go aren't we okay um what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision looking back yeah hmm. interesting question I mean obviously sticking at stuff that I found difficult the book bits of education where you think oh god this can't you know, it's like going to the gym and thinking right I, I'll do the arm stuff because I, I find that easy but not that you know, I can't do legs or anything that's got involves running on almost every time you go to the thing that you don't want to do you feel better after it mm-hmm. you'd think after a million times, we'd all get that and it'd just be natural, but somehow you relearn it every single humans, time. Yeah. So so that is, yeah, there's been plenty of those where you think, okay, well, I'm going to dig in and do this and be kind of bloody minded. I think I'll probably get up on mum because she's off the scale, bloody minded. Where do you go to discover new ideas or when you need space to think? I often sit on the circle line. I, I wrote a lot of one of the books on the circle line, on my wow. phone, on notes. Just why, any reason why the well because it, you, you don't have to get off. <laughs> yeah, um, I like the no, the noise level is just about perfect for mm-hmm. me. It's white noise, like babies go to sleep with white noise, and I kind of it just it's 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 just right. It's mm-hmm. not a conversation. You don't pick up conversation, especially in London. On when I was talking, but but it's just a, a nice hubbub. So yeah, I haven't done that for a while, but I used. But to. that was late at night. No, no, that for the, it was the second book. It was, it, I just used to think if I was in a bit of a hole, I'd go and sit on the circle line. And there's one cafe in Ellsfield called Mel's that I, I wrote the first book in a lot of that if ever I'm really in trouble and can't get something away, I do go there and sit at the, that table, which is a bit, it's like a bad movie plot. But <laughs> I, do, I do, I've done it, I've done it. Who are your influences or inspirations? Richard, Curtis, yeah. Emma Freud, without doubt. I was lucky enough to do a little bit of work with Stephen Fry recently, and he's even better Genius, than yeah. even better than I thought he was going to be, and I thought he was going to be godlike. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're, they're they're three pretty good ones. I've been incredibly lucky. To come what were you doing with Stephen like Fry? It was for the Global Goals. He, oh. Richard and Richard Curtis and Stephen did a a, a section at Unger last year, and I I wrote some some of it with those two. Yeah. You don't need to write much with those two, but I just helped fashion it. Uh, what's your perspective on the word failure? Obviously, and it's very fashionable, isn't it, that failure's part of the process, and I get that, and it's true. Uh, you know, it can be painful failure, mm-hmm. especially for kids. It, 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 so you you need to you need if you fail in a positive, loving environment, that's fine. If you fail in a harsh environment, that can leave proper scars. So yeah. uh, while it's it's kind of of the moment to say mm-hmm. you need to fail, and it's fine to fail and good to fail, all those mantras that come out, you've got that's- to set you've got to set up the environment to do that in otherwise you just don't go back yeah and there's plenty of organizations that won't punish you for it that's for sure yeah 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 fail fail first fail fast all that malarkey who's made you reevaluate yourself being a parent does yeah like about every daily (laughs) yeah because you, you you see your best and your worst 
served back at you. It's sometimes in a look, sometimes in a mannerism, sometimes verbally, you know, you know, it is, I struggle to listen to myself back on the podcast that I do anyway. But when you hear someone come out with, you know, and that's the obvious ones when you kind of road rage or say something you shouldn't, but even just if, if you're, if you see your kids being kind, that's nice. You know, if you think you're learning kindness mm-hmm. is big, is a big deal. I, I've, I've you know, feel quite strongly about that. And sometimes bringing up kids is hard because the world's not kind. But if you try and inst- keep them being kind and giving people the benefit of the doubt, they do look at you sometimes as if to say, what, you're just sending me out with no protection here. But it feels like you should stick with it as a parent. I might be wrong about that and I'll come back in 10 years' time with my broken children. But that 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 feels important somehow. I'm not even sure what the question was, but the answer is kindness. Mm-hmm. Technology is a big part of your life. How do you keep up with it? My wife would answer that with the word Twitter because <laughs> I am on Twitter a lot. I love Twitter and I know it's dark sides and it may well play a part in the destruction of civilization as we know it, but I do love it and I always have. And it's to like news stories, tech, it's just brilliantly. And the, the thing, the reason Twitter's so good is is because it is the searchability of Twitter. There's mm. nothing like it. Yeah. Try and find something going on on Facebook. No chance. No. Like, I, I, I don't know how there's no chance, but there still isn't. It's like Twitter, you're there. You're like mm. you're there. And as a anyone who's interested in current affairs or the kind of cult of the new, you're going to be attracted to that platform because it is just astonishing to be with the person that's going through the event with them there live. Yeah. And you can be anywhere in the world on the thing in your pocket is is wondrous, I think. Why is it you think that it seems to have stalled? I mean, the, Jack Dorsey's continually trying to sort of deal with shareholders and their quarterly reports that their the average users are either stalling or they're dropping. Mm. I mean, I find it astounding that everyone doesn't want to have an active Twitter account. Yeah, I mean, or at least sense? a passive one. Or, yeah, passive, but just to be, ta- as you say, it's a... Ta- it's a it's a barometer of the now in every sense that it's almost an indispensable sort of tool. If you you want to, rather than just go to a daily news feed, you can always go there and you just know exactly what's happening there and then in, in that very instant. I, I don't know, uh, over here currently, drama on TV has never been bigger. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> I struggle with Line of Duty only because, not that as a show, I'm sure it's brilliant, but the the, the real world is so crazily interesting at the minute mm-hmm. that I'd, I'd struggle to get interested in the fictional world that is not true for millions of people by all accounts and that might be escapism it might be whatever but it, it, it so what you and I might say well Twitter's brilliant because it's the best why go to a paper people say I'm not even going to go to a paper I'm just going to turn the TV on well, I suppose there's, a lot, pick to, a, novel there's a lot to try and escape from in the world though. yeah yeah quite Brexit Britain at the it, moment it, you don't but, you know, I'm into the detail of all that. But if you ask me about Game of Thrones, I don't know. So mm. I think that's part of it. In terms of Twitter, what well, I'd love Twitter. If Twitter became the, the wiki of social platforms, then at Jack would go down in history. If that was what it became, if it was given to the planet in mm. some way or form, God knows how it's moderated, I don't know. But I'd love Twitter to do that rather than trying to flog itself off. Um, the impossible question, what would your advice be to someone um, who's just about to graduate, go to study or as a dream, goal, grand ambition, but it's been told, uh, forget it, that's impossible? That's just rubbish, isn't it? I mean, if, if yeah. ever there was a time in human history when, when anything was possible, it's now. Yeah. Like, 
that I know there are plenty of barriers in front of people still globally, but you can. I met a Zimbabwean guy the other day who's developed an app that anyone in sub-Saharan Africa who wants to access bursary money, so there's like one or two billion pounds of untapped bursary money globally every year, unused, untapped, that you can put your qualifications in, what you want to do, and this app will link you up to bursary money that you may or may not be able to get, but you're already halfway through the application process just by using the app. Mm-hmm. He's looking for funding this app, actually, if anyone's listening wants it. It's a brilliant app. That, anywhere with access to... 3G. Where's this kid? Uh, This is a guy, an entrepreneur in Zimbabwe. It's Tanzania. Tanzania. It's Tanzania. Uh, That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, because this is cash, this bursary cash untapped. That like, so you can access, you you can do anything. Yeah, I mean, anyone to tell you, there's any the old careers advisor when we were at school who'd give you that kind of advice about. You can go anywhere and do anything if you want. Okay, I've got a couple of ideas for you on that one. I'll pull off after we wrap this up. Last two questions. What book should we offer the listeners that give us the best comments in the comment section? I mean, if you've not read Sapiens, I'd read it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, Have you read 21 Rules for the 21st Century? Yeah. Yeah, that's also good. I think yeah. I, that his point of view on education is great. Yeah, it is. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Sapiens Worth or um, Moab is my washpot of Stephen Fry. But yeah, Sapiens is a, is a brilliant book. Yeah, okay. Who should we interview next? Richard. Richard Curtis. Yeah. Try and get him wow. okay. in. <laughs> might have to ask you a little favour as a, yeah, yeah, an intro yeah. next well, time look, look. well next time we're over in the UK anyway well he's in New York, New York. a fair bit okay. yeah around Unger we'll see what we can do alright that could be great yeah, yeah. alright well yeah thank you very much Mark for your time um, thank you for your passion and uh, acknowledge you just for the great work you've done over the years with Comic Relief and your continued optimism for humanity well which Thank you very is, much. I'll much uh, appreciate and needed at a time when I think a lot of people are feeling negative in the face of Brexit Britain, constant news stream of sort of crisis and US political system that's full of uncertainty. So um, Yeah, look, you know, it's um you wake up every day there's just more opportunities than than there are threats generally. It, it's yeah, it's a mindset. I don't always manage to pull it off, you know, everyone has their moments, but yeah. Um, but it's been a pleasure talking to you and more power to your, your podcast elbow well, thank you very much ok folks that's it for this week if you like the show please subscribe and ideally give us a 5 star rating and a review because it helps more people find us just go to iTunes Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe if you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork This show is a Fabrica Collective production and is produced by Bettina McKelly and Elaine Castillo-Keller. For now, be curious, be creative and be open to serendipity. See you next time.